Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom for what will be the last episode in 2021, also known as 2AC, Anno Covidi, the second year of the new normal. And today I wanted to talk about an article that's up on CNN. There is some value in at least looking at these media websites to see what they're telling everybody. Not that there's much value in what they're telling people, but at least we ought to know. So the headline of this article says, Biden administration signals pandemic strategy shift in the face of Omicron. And the gist of the article is that because the Omicron virus is so contagious and acknowledging that it does cause more mild disease, that the old measures that work so well against the original COVID-19 virus and the Delta variant and other variants may not work against this. And I'll I'll just read a few paragraphs from this. The opening paragraph says, America is plunging into a fast, worsening, and frightening winter bout with COVID-19 that will leave few citizens and communities untouched. But as the highly transmissible Omicron variant roars across the country, The Biden administration is revealing the most tangible signs of a shifting pandemic strategy several weeks in the making. It is preparing a nation exhausted by two years of battling the invisible enemy to live more feasibly alongside it. The new strain of a virus that had already killed more than 800,000 Americans is forcing quick government course alterations. President Joe Biden's White House faces a dilemma rooted in increasing evidence that Omicron causes more mild disease than previous variants, yet is so contagious that it has the power to cause massive shutdowns in the fundamental mechanics of daily life. By swamping hospitals and closing down shops, schools, and transportation, Omicron, it appears, is so virulent that there is simply no way the protocols brought in to fight previous variants can remain in place and allow the country to function in any meaningful way. 
So let's unpack some of the statements made in this article, which assume all kinds of things that simply aren't true. And we'll go in reverse here. First of all, the COVID-19 virus did not close down any shops, schools, or transportation, or anything else over the past two years. Only the government shut down those things. And now that we know that the overwhelming majority of people who are seriously affected by COVID-19, even the worst of the variants, whether that was Delta or the original, are elderly people over 70 years old, then we should be able to conclude in hindsight that none of what the government did was necessary, nor was it effective. And certainly a more contagious version of this virus that causes more mild disease is not going to swamp hospitals if the original virus didn't swamp hospitals, which it didn't. So you've got all kinds of, I can't think of another word, but propaganda in this article. And of course, the so-called journalist that wrote the piece asked no questions about any of these assumptions because somehow or other in the last, I can't remember how many years, journalists got the idea that it's their job to just write down what the government says without questioning any of it and just tell us what the government said. Now, I hate to break it to them, but we don't need journalists for that. We can watch what the government is saying right on our smartphones. We don't even need to read it in the newspaper anymore. We can watch it live. So anyone out there that considers himself or herself a journalist, if you're not pushing back on what the government is telling us, we don't need you. You're not fulfilling any useful role in society. But I digress. As I said, the overall gist of the article assumes that the measures put in place over the last two years have been effective at limiting the spread or limiting the strain on hospitals or whatever it is that the new measuring stick is for lockdowns, mask mandates, and other COVID restrictions. But the evidence shows that just isn't true. If it were true, then we should see a massive disaster in Florida, in Iowa, in South Dakota, in Texas. And I don't mean that you can tease out some number that if you massage it the right way shows that maybe deaths were 8% higher in one of those jurisdictions. No, if these things really worked, we should see a massive difference in the death rate and the overall morbidity of COVID-19 in those states. It's not there. No one has any explanation for that. And again, no journalist asks this question. It was asked once several months ago by, of all people, an MSNBC reporter, and it was just left hanging in the air. The administration official had no good answer. I believe his name was Andy Slavitt, and it was just left hanging there. Never asked again. So no, the COVID-19 measures that we have endured over the last two years and which have caused massive economic and societal damage, not to mention deaths. Nobody seems to be counting that number or even asking about it. Has anybody asked Dr. Anthony Fauci, how many deaths do you think lockdowns cause? No, nobody asked him. Nobody asked Governor Cuomo when he was imposing them. Nobody asked even what he anticipated or how his administration was going to assess 
the damage done by the lockdowns versus the damage done by the virus. But in any case, I'll post a link to Tom Wood's great quiz called the COVID Charts Quiz, where you can see for yourself a nice side-by-side comparison of jurisdictions that imposed lockdowns or mask mandates or both and jurisdictions that didn't and compare the course of the virus within those jurisdictions. It's hands down that this didn't do anything. And we've known this for quite a long time. In fact, there have been a lot of comparisons uh, of the COVID-19 epidemic to the Spanish flu back in 1918. And first of all, there is no comparison between these two things. The Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide at a time when that was a much bigger percentage of the population. It's estimated it infected about 500 million people. So it had a 10% mortality rate. COVID-19 is nowhere close to that. I think the official mortality rate somewhere around 1.5%, and that's probably inflated for reasons that I've talked about quite a bit in previous episodes. But in any case, I wanted to read a passage from Alex Berenson's book, Pandemia, because it's got a great little factoid in here that a lot of people probably don't know. Now, it has been mentioned here from time to time that prior to 2020, it was pretty much the scientific consensus that none of the measures that the governments around the world employed over the past two years were effective. And what I didn't know was this was established immediately after the Spanish flu pandemic. I'd like to read a passage from Berenson's book, And I'm picking this up where he says, Shortly after the epidemic ended in 1919, Dr. W.H. Kellogg, the executive officer of the California State Board of Health, published a summary of conclusions reached as a result of the study of the control measures adopted. In other words, what, if any, public health rules had been most helpful? When he compared the course of the epidemic in different cities, Kellogg found that most regulations had made little difference. He was particularly dismissive of masks. And now he's quoting the study, Berenson. The very complete records at the disposal of the California State Board of Health indicate conclusively that the compulsory wearing of masks does not affect the progress of the epidemic. Three eastern cities that had no mask rules had seen the same course of the epidemic as San Francisco. Worse, nearly all the nurses at San Francisco Hospital had been infected, even though they wore masks while treating patients. Kellogg speculated one reason mask rules might fail was that people took off their masks when they most needed them, when they were in close contact with friends. And Barrison goes on to say, Nor did mass closings seem to matter, Kellogg wrote. Instead, he argued that self-isolation of sick people appeared to be the most effective tactic against the flu. So what do you know? This doctor, who would have been more the equivalent of a Dr. Fauci back in 1919, the conversion of the United States from a federal republic into a national garrison state had not really uh, progressed very far by 1919. There was still some vestiges of the old republic where things like this were handled locally. So 
the executive director of the State Board of Health in California would have been a very powerful person who wouldn't necessarily have been following the dictates of some national figure like Fauci. But his conclusion over a hundred years ago was the same as any rational person looking at the data today. These measures made no difference. And he's looking at them the same way we should be looking at the data today, which is let's see what happened in jurisdictions that didn't do any of these things. And of course, we're not finding a difference with the virus. Okay, everyone, let's take a quick break for this important message. It's that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. So, of course, I'll have a link to Berenson's book, as well as this particular study, if you're interested in going through and reading it firsthand. I've always been somebody who likes to go to the original source and just verify what a secondary source might be saying about it and see if there's anything there that somewhat conflicts with or at least puts more nuance to the conclusions. So you're welcome to do that. I'll have links on the show notes page. But let's get back to this CNN article because there's more there to talk about. First, I want to read this doozy because it tacitly admits everything I've just said. It says, Blizzards of new public health guidance on how long people should isolate after positive tests and when they should get tested risk further confusing a public that has already seen reversals and changes in such information. A downside of the battle against a pathogen that always seems one step ahead of efforts to combat it. So what are we saying there? Basically, nothing the government has done has worked, okay? This is a way of euphemizing that information by saying that the virus just seems one step ahead of the efforts. And they also acknowledge here that the public health officials, the so-called experts, keep contradicting themselves. Why? Because they don't know what they're talking about. And this assumption that there is any government solution to a respiratory virus is wrong. It has no connection with reality, and we've known this for over a hundred years. But here's another part of the article. It also says, but with the public desperate for deliverance from a crisis that has pounded the nation's psyche for parts of three winners, a government-caused crisis, by the way, not a virus-caused crisis, it is looking like economic and societal factors, rather than just epidemiology, are important in shaping the U.S. response to the virus. 
Well, yes, of course. Isn't that what all of us with any kind of connection with reality have been saying since March 2020? You cannot just look at the virus in a vacuum and say, what can we do to decrease infections today or the course of the spread or the speed of the spread without considering the effects of the measures you're employing on non-COVID-related deaths, on economic factors? In July 2020, UNICEF put out a report that, of course, had all the same doublespeak as today's CNN article, but this is from July 27, 2020. And the headline reads, UNICEF, an additional 6.7 million children under five could suffer from wasting this year due to COVID-19. Now, of course, when they say due to COVID-19, they don't mean because of the virus. They mean because of the government reaction to the virus. And I'll read you from the article. An additional 6.7 million children under the age of five could suffer from wasting and therefore become dangerously undernourished in 2020 as a result of the socioeconomic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, UNICEF warned today. According to an analysis published in The Lancet, 80% of these children would be from sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Over half would be from South Asia alone. And here's a quote from the study in The Lancet. It's been seven months since the first COVID-19 cases were reported, and it is increasingly clear that the repercussions of the pandemic are causing more harm to children than the disease itself, said UNICEF Executive Director Henrietta Four. Household poverty and food insecurity rates have increased. Essential nutrition services and supply chains have been disrupted. Food prices have soared. As a result, the quality of children's diets has gone down and malnutrition rates will go up. So let me translate that for you. It's not repercussions of the pandemic that are causing harm to the children. It's government policies to fight the pandemic, which threatened to starve 6.7 million children to death. Now, why didn't their lives matter? As of today, we've only had 5 million deaths worldwide attributed to COVID. And of course, as I keep saying, those numbers are suspect. And I don't want anyone to get the impression I mean nobody has died of COVID. A lot of people have died from COVID. Probably not as many as being reported or attributed to the disease, but certainly a lot, but less than that 6.7 million children. Now, has anybody gone back to find out how many of those children actually did either die or were permanently affected from malnutrition? No. And, and this is something that's true of every government program, from the war on drugs to the Department of Education, to you name it, trade-offs don't exist. Never will you hear a public health official come and say, look, we have a very contagious virus on our hands. It's more deadly than the flu. It's not anywhere near as deadly as something like Ebola or the Spanish flu. And here's what we propose. Now, these measures have the possibility of causing a lot of avoidable deaths themselves. And from what we can see so far, 
We may be looking at younger people dying from the measures we're going to put in place than from the disease itself. So we've got a choice to make here. No, you never hear anything like this from a public health official. We've got this policy. We have no interest in finding out what the unintended consequences of this policy might be. We're just doing this for political reasons to show that we're doing something and we think it's going to work. And the irony is there was no upside. There was no trade-off. It was all pain and no gain. And it's important that we learn from that because, as I've said on a previous episode, this will be the new normal to respond to any contagious disease from now on, whether it's about the same or less deadly or more deadly than COVID-19. And there's even a, a hint at that in the CNN article, and I'll just read one more passage. But the evolving administration approach is also one that could eventually point to a sustainable path back to something closer to normality for many Americans once the winter surge abates, a future in which COVID-19 will always be in the background and not eradicated. Thanks for telling us something we already knew, which is that this virus is never going away. We always knew that. Coronaviruses in the past have never gone away. They're still there. They still come back every once in a while, and they infect some people every year. But notice the words closer to normality. And this is something that I can't say more emphatically. We cannot allow any of this to become normal. We must resist these measures because the plan is that just like after the war on terror, it became life plus the TSA, it will now become life plus occasional mask mandates, life plus occasional lockdowns whenever some public health official panics and decides that they want to do something even more cynically for political reasons. Vaccine mandates will not go away unless people resist them. Even after the pandemic is declared over and supposedly we're back to normal, those will stay in place unless people push back. And if anything, in the new year in 2022, it's got to be the year where we say no to all this. Otherwise, it's just going to be one more layer of misery, one more unnecessary and ineffective layer of misery that the government permanently attaches to our lives and the lives of our children. So maybe wishing you a happy new year might seem ironic under those circumstances, but I have a feeling that the people who do listen to my show have a much different perspective than the people who support this madness. And let's not just have a happy new year. Let's make 2022 a freer new year. Let's make it the year that we put a stop to all this, where we said no. Occasions like that have been rare, but I do point to prohibition of alcohol Another bit of government madness that would have been permanent if people didn't just say no. They ignored the laws. You had juries nullifying the laws by refusing to convict people, and eventually the government gave in. We've seen that also with marijuana laws, if not the whole of the war on drugs. So there is some hope. So let's go into 2022 hopeful and spread the message of freedom. Let people know we don't have to live like this and we shouldn't live like this. And let's have a happy new year. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. 
Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at tommullentalksfreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.